Last Sunday, in looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians, we saw that Paul tells his story in order to make two points. First of all, that his apostleship was not from men or by men. He makes this point at the very first, in the first verse. But now he fleshes it out by telling the story of his conversion and the events that came later. And the second point is that his gospel was not from men. He didn't get this from any human being. He did not get this from the apostles, but from God himself. As I said last week, we, we might be a bit surprised. Here we are in the epistles, and Paul is telling the story of his conversion and other events. Um, we expect that stories are found in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, and that the epistles are reserved for theology and, and things like that. But I mentioned it at the end of the sermon last week, that this passage in Galatians points to the significance of both, of both the personal and relational. And when we abandon these things, then in fact we can allow ourselves to believe that we can separate faith from works. That we can allow for a disconnect between what we believe and what we do. And in the process, I think it's possible to hold to an orthodox theology, but live as an atheist. To live as though God does not exist. Or if he does, he has little or no bearing on our lives. The argument that Paul will make to the Galatians is not abstract or theoretical. It will be based on truth, which is by definition personal and relational. In the passage we saw last Sunday, we saw that Paul went up to Jerusalem twice after his conversion. The first time was three years after his conversion, three years that we know nothing about. He went up to meet Peter and he was there for 15 days. The second time was 14 years later, and this was after a year of preaching in Antioch, Syria. As we saw last week, Paul returned to his hometown in Tarsus and Cilicia, and he was there for apparently 13 years. And then Barnabas came from Antioch to get him and brought him to Antioch, and there they ministered together for a year. Antioch is significant because this is the first place that we know of where the gospel was preached to non-Jews, that is, to Gentiles. And in fact, the people in Jerusalem were somewhat curious about this. They sent Barnabas up to check out what was going on. And Barnabas was quite pleased with what he found. And so he got Saul, who later became known as Paul, to help him in the ministry there. Paul mentions that he went to Jerusalem the second time in response to a revelation. But the revelation wasn't from God saying, Paul, you need to go to Jerusalem. In fact, it was uh, a prophecy from a prophet named Agabus that there would be a famine. And so the brothers and sisters in Antioch said, we need to help the poor in Jerusalem. So they got a collection together and they sent Paul, Barnabas and Titus with this collection to help those who were in need. It is while he is in Jerusalem that Paul talks to the apostles. Up to this point, he's only met Peter. And he set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. Again, humanly speaking, this isn't why he went to Jerusalem, but God provided the opportunity. And Paul says to the apostles, okay, this is what I've been preaching uh, to the Gentiles. He did it privately, we saw, because there were some people who were very suspicious of what he was doing. We saw last week that at this point, the apostles cannot influence what Paul is preaching. 
It's too late for that. Either they say what you're preaching is okay, or they say what you're preaching is heresy and we want nothing to do with you. Uh, Paul looks to them for confirmation, and in fact, they get it. He says, they saw that I had been entrusted, this is verse number 7 of chapter 2, with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. The message, the gospel that Paul received from God, was the same message that the apostles in Jerusalem were preaching. And they saw that Paul had, in fact, been commissioned to preach specifically to the Gentiles, while they and Peter, as their leader, would preach to the Jews. But as I mentioned, again, it is worth noting that Peter, in fact, was the first to preach to the Gentiles with Cornelius. And that Paul's pattern of preaching, he would always go into a town and go to the synagogue, that is where the Jews are. He would preach first to the Jews, invariably get kicked out, and then preach to the Gentiles. So you have the apostle to the Jews preaching to Gentiles and the apostle to the Gentiles preaching to Jews, which only serves to reinforce the point that the gospel is the same. There isn't a gospel for Gentiles and a gospel for Jews. There is one gospel. Peter primarily preaches to the Jews and Paul primarily to the Gentiles, but it is the same gospel. It is the same good news that people, whether Jew or Gentile, can become a part of the family of God. Paul tells his story to reinforce what he's been trying to tell the Galatians up to this point. That his message did not come from human beings. He got it from God. And he did not get his apostleship from the apostles in Jerusalem. They rather confirmed what God had already given to him. But this is the beginning of a bumpy road. Because we are told that Peter decides to go up to Antioch. And when he is in Antioch, there he eats with Gentiles and Jews alike. <clears throat> I've mentioned this before, but I think in many ways we really, really struggle with this because this is a non-issue for us. We do not decide who we're going to eat with based on their ethnicity. That, that really is a non-issue for us. But in the ancient world, it was extremely important that eating with someone was a sign of solidarity. And Peter goes to Antioch and he does... What most self-respecting Jews would never do, he eats with Gentiles. Now, I mentioned last week that Paul jumps right into the story. There's no sort of lead-in, there's no introduction. He jumps right in because I think this is a story the Galatians have been told. They've been told it the wrong way, and now Paul tells it the right way. That Peter goes up there and he eats with the Gentiles, first in the Lord's Supper, as we have just done, and then afterwards in a meal together. Peter apparently has no problem with this until some Jewish Christians come up from Jerusalem and then suddenly Peter will not eat with the Gentile believers anymore. He will only eat with the Jews. He segregates himself from the Gentile Christians. He was being hypocritical and Paul calls him on it to his face and publicly. He says, you are a Jew, verse 14, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Just to correct a bit, I think I may have created some confusion last week because I talked about the fake Peter and the real Peter as though there were two Peters. There was, in fact, one man, but he was acting in two different ways. 
And they can't both be right. Either Peter was right in eating with the Gentile Christians, or he was right in eating only with the Jewish Christians. They can't both be right. And Paul says what you did here was right, eating with Gentiles and Jews alike. But when you separated yourself and only ate with the Jews, what you were doing was wrong. You're acting in two different ways, and this does not mesh with the gospel. Now, if you have the NIV, you may notice that there are quotation marks before the statement, you are a Jew. And the ESV has it as well. But if you have the ESV, the quotation marks end at verse number 14. It close quotes at the end of verse number 14, making verse number 14 the one sentence that Paul said to Peter, that Paul said to Peter, this is the way you're acting. Um, the ESV, I think, here is incorrect. If you look at the NIV, the close quotes come at the end of chapter 2, at the end of verse number 21. It makes a huge difference. Because what we find in verses 14 through 21, this is all Paul's answer to Peter. This is what Paul said to Peter publicly. Uh, oftentimes, I think we take this as sort of a, a statement of private spirituality. This is a very public statement, and it's made to an individual. It's made to Peter, but there is much that we can learn from it. In chapter 3, if you look at verse number 1, Paul will address the Galatians directly. But up to verse number 21, Paul is speaking to Peter. Or he was. This is, these are the words he used when he spoke to Peter in Antioch. So follow along, if you would, as I read, beginning at verse 14. These are all directed, these are addressed to Peter. You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that, our, that Christ promotes sins? Absolutely not. If I rebuild the wall, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. It seems that suddenly Paul has gotten theological on us and he's gotten very technical in what he's trying to say. But remember, he is addressing Peter. And so there are some very specific things that he's trying to say. There are two parts, I think, to this. First of all, what Peter knows, and this goes uh, through verse number 17. And then from verse 18 to the end, this is what Paul knows based on his experience. What does Peter know? Peter should know better. If somehow we could travel back in time, hopefully we would have the courage that Paul did and say to Peter, you are a hypocrite. What you are doing is wrong. What, as long as there aren't any Jews from Jerusalem around, you feel like you can hang out with people? What, are you slumming with the Gentile Christians? 
But then when the people come from Jerusalem, suddenly you're prim and proper. You are a hypocrite. And this is what Paul says to him. Peter, you know better. What does Peter know? First of all, that Peter was acting like a Gentile. That is, until the Jewish brothers came from Jerusalem. How was Peter acting like a Gentile? We can consider a number of possibilities. That he had turned his back on circumcision, that's unlikely. Uh, that he was eating pork and other non-kosher food. Um, it's possible. Um, I'm not sure. Was he disobeying laws found in the Mosaic Code? I think this is unlikely. Was Peter no longer praying? I think this is highly unlikely. Peter was saying there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. And he was doing this by eating with the Gentiles. This is how Peter was living like a Gentile. To reinforce this, I think it helps if we go back to Acts chapter 10, when Peter went to the house of Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, a Gentile. And uh, talking with him, this is verse 27, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. And then a few verses later, but it, um, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Peter says the law says I can't even associate with Gentiles. And now he goes to Antioch and he's eating with Gentile Christians. He's not living like a Jew. He's living like a Gentile. One writer puts it this way. Something has happened to Peter. Something so profound that he now has a new identity, which affects key behavior patterns and taboos about that very central human activity, sitting down to a meal. Peter's a different person. He now realizes it's okay to eat with Gentiles. Again, for us, this seems so strange. But we say, well, of course, we're Gentiles. It's okay to eat with us, I guess. But God had called his people to be separate. And the Jews took this to mean they could not associate with Gentiles. They certainly could not eat with them. But now Peter has a new identity. He's had a revelation and he realizes, I can eat with my brothers who are Gentiles. The second thing that Peter should know, if he doesn't, is that he is forcing the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. One might say, how is he forcing Gentiles to do this? Okay, you go to church. You have communion. And after the, after the service, after communion, you sit down and eat. But Peter will no longer eat with you. He will only eat with the Jews, with those that are following Jewish customs. By doing so, he's basically saying to the Gentiles, if you want to sit at the big table with the adults... You need to live like a Jew. You need to follow Jewish customs. And of course, who doesn't want to eat at the big table? I mean, you don't want to be stuck at the kids' table with the Gentiles. You want to be up there with the adults. And so the Gentiles are feeling pressured. They're feeling forced. Okay, we're going to have to become like the Jews in order to enjoy table fellowship with Peter and the other believers. 
The third thing Peter knows is that both he and Paul are Jews. This might seem like, well, yeah, it's a no-brainer, it's a non-issue, but it's critical to this passage. Because as Paul rebukes Peter, he is not doing it as a Gentile, saying, you hypocritical Jew. They are both Jews. Okay. And Paul has the same standing as Peter does. Not only are they Jewish, they are not Gentile sinners. Not sinners of the Gentiles, the King James has. Uh, the New American Standard says, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Actually, Paul uses a very technical term here, and, and I'm surprised that translators don't include it here. It literally means lesser breeds. Lesser breeds. Gentiles. Not second-class citizens beyond that. It is a term that Jews would use about the Gentiles. Not a pleasant term. And Paul says, using the language of the brothers from Jerusalem, you know, Peter, you and I are Jews. We're not lesser breeds like the Gentiles. In this, Paul is reflecting, and I think he's being highly ironic, but he is reflecting the Jewish attitude that they are better than everyone else. And part of this, I think, is rooted in Scripture, that they have, in fact, been called. They are the chosen people of God. Um, and if you're Jewish, you have an ethnic identity. There are certain things you do, certain things you don't do. But in Christ, we'll get to that in a few moments. The fourth thing that Peter should know is that a man is not justified by observing the law. Now we get into territory that sounds really theological. But we need to be careful. Because oftentimes, when we read this passage, we do so with Paul's other writings in our mind. But this, in fact, is one of Paul's earliest letters. And so Romans has not been written. And so I would say in many ways his theology has not been fully developed. Um, from Paul's other writings, we know about justification. It's a legal term. It's used in the courtroom. If you are justified, it means that you are given status of being in the right. That you are in the right. And that when we are justified in Christ, we go from being in the wrong, being sinners, to being in the right. But there are two things I want you to consider in this passage. First of all, that this is one of Paul's earliest letters. But secondly, that Paul is not in a courtroom as he speaks to Peter. He's at the dinner table. It's a meal. And he's calling Peter on his hypocrisy. He is confronting Peter on ethnic taboos. You know, the Jews are like, well, there's no way we can eat with the Gentiles. And Paul says, wait a minute. Peter, you know better than this. Yes, you are a Jew, but you are a Christian Jew, and you should not separate from Gentiles along ethnic lines. The force of this statement is not that we have been given the forgiveness of our sins that we have. Or that we have come into a right relationship with God. We have. It is because we are in a right relationship with God, we are now part of a new family. The family of God. And you know what? People in this family, some of them are Jewish and some of them are Gentile. And you didn't get into the family because you were chosen as a Jew, you got into the family through what Christ has done. 
And in this family, in this people, you find both Jews and Gentiles. What about what Paul says here about the works of the law? Paul has just written about following Jewish customs, which includes separating yourself from Gentiles. I believe this is what he's referring to. Uh, He's not talking about good works, as the Reformers would have us think. But what he says is, you don't get to go to the table. You don't get to eat with other Christians based on your ethnicity, based on works of the law. I'm a Jew, therefore I get to eat at the big table. You know, if you're a Gentile, you can't. You're excluded. I get to eat at the big table because of what Jesus Christ has done by faith in Jesus Christ. I'm at the table because I'm a part of the family of God. I'm a part of the people of God. And who are the people of God? Those who are in Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. But wait a minute. Is it only Jews, Jewish Christians, along with the Gentiles who have converted to Judaism, are they the ones who get to go at the big table and then Gentile Christians, that's us, we're second class citizens? No, God has one family. And the family consists of one person, that is, the Messiah. And we are in the Messiah. We are in Jesus Christ because of what he has done. So Paul tells Peter, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus. Because otherwise, why bother? If we get to eat at the big table because we're Jewish, we don't need Jesus. We don't need to believe that he's the Messiah. We're set. We're at the table. But no, we believe that Jesus is the one that God has sent And therefore, we are part of the people of God. For the second time in this verse, Paul talks about not being justified by observing the law. But here he is quoting from Psalm 143, verse number two. Uh, The King James is clear here. It says, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. The point Paul is making is that by believing in Jesus as the Messiah, The Jewish Christians are saying that they believe it's not by the law. It's not because they're Jewish. It's because of Jesus, the Messiah. By believing, they are identifying themselves with Jesus. If you look at verse number 17, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does this mean that Christ promotes sins? Absolutely not. By seeking to sit at the table the dinner table with God's people, and doing so by believing in Jesus as the promised one, one says, I'm a sinner. Because if you're not a sinner, then you just get to go to the table. You don't have to believe in anything. Who Jesus is is immaterial. But by saying, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the one that God has sent, you're saying, I'm a sinner. I won't be allowed at the table. I cannot be at the table, even if I'm Jewish, because I am a sinner. We find very much the same thing going on in the ministry of John the Baptizer. When John preached, he did something that for us, we're just so at home with it, it doesn't strike us as unusual. But John baptized people, hence the baptizer. But... John was baptizing Jews. 
Before John came along, the only people who were ever baptized were Gentiles who wanted to join Judaism, who wanted to become Jews. And in order to become a Jew, you had to be baptized, in a sense, to wash away the old person and become a new person, a Jew. Well, isn't it odd that you would say to a Jew, you need to be baptized as though you're not a Jew. You need to wash away that old identity and become a Jew. John, we are Jews. Yes, but you are sinners. And so he preached baptism for the remission of sins. You need to repent of your sins and become a new person. In the same way, when a Jew says, I put my faith in Jesus as the Messiah, he or she is saying, I'm actually an outsider. I actually can't be at the table. I'm not a part of the people of God. Yes, I'm Jewish, but I'm not a part of the family of God. And in order to become a part of that family, I must put my faith in Christ. The question then comes up in verse 17, isn't this an invitation to overthrow the law? Suddenly, it seems as though Paul is throwing away all social conventions, all taboos. Does that mean that Christ promotes sins? Absolutely not. Does this mean that I get to live like a Gentile? Of course not. What it means is, is in a sense, being Jewish is nothing. You can only become a part of the people of God through the Messiah by putting your faith in him. Now we come to the last four verses of this passage, and we need to take note of something. Something subtle and yet quite dramatic takes place. Paul shifts from we, Peter, you and I, to I. And here we hear an intensely personal statement. Remember that Paul is telling us of his rebuke of Peter. And the first part of that rebuke involves the two of them. Paul uses you and then he says we. We who are Jews, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus. We may be justified by faith in Christ. While we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. But in this second part, Paul tells his story. That's what he's been doing all along. If I rebuild, he says in verse 18, what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. What is Paul talking about? We have to ask ourselves, what did he destroy? And what would he be rebuilding? The thing he destroyed is actually something that God destroyed. It was the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. That which separated the Jews from the Gentiles. By preaching to the Gentiles, Paul has broken through the wall. He's torn down the wall. And that's why he could go to a synagogue and preach the gospel, get kicked out, and turn around and preach the gospel to Gentiles. The wall has been destroyed. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. Let me read to you. Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 18. Therefore, remember what, that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, Jew and Gentile, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, to the Gentiles and to the Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. By preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul is saying they are welcome to become a part of the family of God. That they can, in fact, be a part of the people of God. The wall that kept them out has been destroyed. Certainly it's been destroyed by Christ, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. But Paul, by his preaching, has destroyed this wall. It has been abolished by the Messiah, who called Paul to preach to the Gentiles. If Paul destroys this wall by preaching to them and they get saved, they become Christians. And then after the service, after communion, Paul says, oh, by the way, you guys need to eat over there and we're going to eat over here. Paul's putting that wall right back up. The wall of separation. And I like what he says in Ephesians 2, the wall of hostility. You're lesser breeds and we're the chosen ones. We're the people of God. Paul says, if he does that, then he is building up what he has destroyed. He's putting up a wall, and Paul will not stand for this. Paul now turns, he returns to the matter of his conversion and its radical implications. And let me just be clear. Although Paul says, I hear. I think what he is saying is this must be true or should be true of all Christians. It should be true of Peter, certainly, but it should be true of all of God's people. Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What does this mean? It sounds like double talk. Well, let me read to you this, the account of Paul's conversion. Bear with me. It's found in Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul, that's Paul, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. 
The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went into the house and entered it, or went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. You see, as one who was zealous for the law, Paul looked to it for membership. For him, eating at the big table was because he was a part of the Jewish people. This changed on the road to Damascus. Perhaps in the three days of darkness of not being able to see and not eating or drinking. It is through the law, he says, I die to the law. He came to realize that commending himself as a good Jew, as a good Pharisee, was not the way. That separation from the Gentiles was not the way. The answer lie elsewhere. He says, so that I might live for God. What does that mean and how has that worked out? Well, then we come to verse number 20. I think perhaps one of the best known verses in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I said a moment ago that Paul describes here what it means to be a Christian. Here he is not giving a statement about a private religious experience, some internal experience that he has had. Because in many ways that would not solve the problem. He is rebuking Peter. And by the way, in rebuking Peter, he's also rebuking the other Jews who have separated themselves from the Gentiles. See, if what Paul is talking about in verse number 20 is his own experience, and it's his and his alone, then people would say to Paul, well, that's very nice. We're very happy for you, Paul. But we've not had that intense experience. We've not had the experience that you've had. And so we really don't know what you're talking about. Um, experience is not the issue. What is the issue? A Jew who believes that Jesus is the sent one, the anointed one, the Messiah, dies to the old identity. Being a Jew isn't going to cut it. It's not the basis of identity. Rather, I have a new identity by putting my faith in Christ. So in a sense, the old identity dies. It is crucified with Christ. It is ended. That old identity is not sufficient. Paul says, I'm crucified. I no longer live. That old identity is gone. But he rises to a new identity defined by the Messiah himself. Christ lives in me, the life I live in the body. You see, this Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, was faithful even to death. 
And he has brought his people out of the old and into the new. We've just commemorated that in the Lord's Supper. The new, this is the new covenant in his blood. We now become a part of a new people. And this event is an objective reality. We may not feel anything. And many people have really uh, bemoaned the fact that they believe that when they became a Christian, there wasn't this intense religious experience or emotional experience. Paul would say that's not the issue. It's not the issue at all. It is that we say that old identity is gone. That will not justify me. That will not allow me to be a part of the people of God. But in Christ, I can become a part of the family of God. Paul adds one more thing. Uh, The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, I don't think Paul is just throwing this in. Um, I also don't think he put it in for the reason I'm about to give. But at the moment, we might feel like this is, boy, this, this, I like this, this is good theology. You know, the story stuff, that's for Sunday school. This is the good theological stuff. I think at the moment that we might feel that that's the case, Paul tells us that the death and resurrection of Jesus are not mere transactional events. They are personal, relational events. Jesus loved me, gave himself for me. This isn't, okay, I've got X amount of sins, and so Jesus dies, but forgive my sins. It's sort of a, my sins are taken off the books. It's a transaction. No, Paul wants us to know that this was an intensely personal thing and relational. Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Paul says to Peter, Jesus loved me. And you as well, Peter, you know it, and gave himself for me. This leads to the final statement in the rebuke of Peter. From the love of the Son of God, we move on to that which it embodied, and that is the very grace of God himself. Verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And here it is. This is it in a nutshell. If there is separation... If we become a part of the people of God based on the law, then Jews can never eat with Gentiles. Gentiles certainly who do not keep the law. And if that's the case, then the the death of Jesus is a complete waste. It is an absolute waste. Christ died for nothing. If the Gentiles have to stay at the kids' table and only the Jews get to eat at the big table, then Christ died for nothing was a waste. But the fact is, Christ died to save both Jews and Gentiles, that we might become one people, both Jewish and Gentile. Paul is saying to Peter, Peter, you need to make up your mind about the gospel. You've been preaching the gospel now for almost 20 years. Um, What is the gospel? What does it mean to be a follower of the Messiah? Are you now a part of the people of God because of the grace of God, because Jesus loved you and gave his life for you? Or is it because you're Jewish and the death of Christ means nothing? Uh, Peter, you need to decide. Make up your mind. 
and decide what your identity is. The death and resurrection of Jesus created a new people. It brings them away from separation. As he says, those of you who are far and those of you who are near, that wall between you, that's gone. Jesus brings us into the family of God. He himself is our peace. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. As familiar as this passage is, I found myself struggling mightily with it. In part, I think, because it's been misunderstood and been misapplied. And I was talking to Woody about this in my academic life, when I wear my academic hat. It's never been my goal to challenge convention. I haven't wanted to change the way history has been written. I've just found that the way it's written is wrong. And so, I mean, it was never my goal to change it. It's just when I do my research, I see that it's not been done correctly. And the same is true of this passage. Um, you know, I, I didn't set out in preparing the sermon to say that Martin Luther was wrong or that the reformers were wrong. I'm just trying to show you what the passage says. And what the passage says is that Paul is rebuking Peter. And in doing so, this is what he tells him. And this is what we are to see. But in doing so, I've had two opposing thoughts in my head. One is, this passage doesn't have a lot to do with us, does it? Because we're Gentiles. I don't think there are any Jews among us. There may be. But I mean, this is sort of a non-issue. This is like a first century issue. This is a Galatian Antioch issue. You know, the Jews from Jerusalem. This really has little to do with us. On the other side, I think this has everything to do with us. Because if you look at the people of God today, those who call themselves the people of God, the church of God, I don't think we are marked by unity at all. I think when we read passages like this, we like it because it has that first person pronoun singular, I. It's about me. I don't think that's what Paul intends. What he is saying is, I became a part of the people of God. I became a part of the family of God. And even when we share the gospel with people, I mean, do we tell people now you, you become a part of the people of God or do we tell now you have Jesus as your own personal savior? It's just you and Jesus, just this personal one-on-one -on -one thing. And certainly that is a part of it. But I think we sort of sweep aside the fact that we are the people of God together. Part of it, I think, is where we live in, in human history since the Reformation and after the, the dividing from the Catholic Church, the Protestantism has just continued to fragment. And this idea that somehow we belong to the people of God, I think, has been lost in the process. We look at Galatians 2.20 as a, almost a sense of self-proclamation. This is who I am. Instead of saying, I belong to the people of God. That is my identity. We should recognize that our identity is found in Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, who loved us and gave himself for us. One of the commentaries I was reading, um, the story is told about Margaret Thatcher, uh, former prime minister in England. And one day, as the prime minister, she was visiting an old folks home and she was going from room to room. And this was a place where many of the people suffered uh, from mental loss, memory loss. And... Um, 
she went in and saw this one elderly woman and she shook her hand and, and she, said, she asked this woman, do you know who I am? And the woman said, no, but if you ask the nurse, she knows who everybody is. As much as to say, no, I, I really, you don't know who you are? I almost think you could say the same thing to the people of God today. Do you know who you are? And I think we'd say, yes, I'm a Christian. Instead of saying, I belong to the people of God. I belong to the family of God. From all different ethnicities, all different languages, all different places. This is what it means to be a Christian. Otherwise, the gospel would have stayed in Israel. It would have never broken out as it did in Antioch, Syria. And then Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to preach elsewhere. And the gospel spread because they realized Christ has broken down the wall. And now both Jews and Gentiles can be a part of the family of God. And it's all because of what Christ has done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, but we freely confess how we struggle with it. I thank you for what Paul has written and for his boldness in confronting Peter. And as he said previously to the Galatians, he didn't do this for himself. Paul was already a Jew. He did it for us, for the Gentiles. That people would come to see that we can be a part of the family of God. Sadly, in the ensuing centuries, we don't think of ourselves, first of all, as part of your family. We think of ourselves as individual Christians. Forgive us. And by your spirit, the same spirit who lives in each one of us, may we recover that sense of belonging and of recognizing that what Jesus came to do was to create a people, the family of God, in which who you were before really doesn't matter. The former identity is gone. It's crucified. It's put to death. And we have a new identity as belonging to your people. We thank you for this amazing gift. We thank you for the gift of your son, whose resurrection we remember this day. He has made all things possible. We thank you for this time that we could worship together. We ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. And we pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.